0: Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we will be studying today verses 1 to 11. 1. Of the, uh, one of the disappointing things about being human is that when we know something is coming, but we don't know the definite time of it, that we can get very lethargic. If that thing is so big in the future that it must affect our lives. In the present, it will, it will very often make no difference to how we think and and how we live and how we conduct ourselves in the world because we don't know when it's coming. If God says it's coming but doesn't tell us when, in our fallen nature, we can just, we can become very lethargic in that thing, that event, that whatever it is may not affect us at all. And I'm thinking in particular of an example from the Old Testament. I mean, you can see this promise that God makes to His people that if they disobey His commandments, they're going to be cursed. And that cursing is going to get to such a point, it's going to culminate in their exile from the land. And their, their disobedience through their years progresses uh, and continues to be perverted and it deepens and it gets to a point where the prophets are very specific. And they say this day of God's judgment is coming. They even pinpoint the people. They say that these enemies from the north, Babylon, the Chaldeans, they're going to come in, they're going to take Jerusalem, they're going to destroy the city, they're going to raise the temple to the ground and they're going to exile you to their land and they're going to be people who die from pestilence or famine or sword, and only a few will remain alive. There's an event coming. God doesn't pinpoint exactly when. And what did the people do? Well, there's nothing we can do about it. We might as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's just live it up now while we have a chance. They were very lethargic about this coming thing, this coming promise. There's a promise in the Word of God for us that the day of the Lord is coming, the ultimate day of the Lord. Jesus is coming back. And we don't know when. No one knows when Jesus is going to come back for His people and to judge those who are wicked. Is it affecting our lives? Is it guarding us from evil, from sin? And is it guiding our desires and our decisions, our choices and our goals that Jesus is coming back? Or are we getting lethargic? How often... Do we not live and think and act and react and marry and parent and work and vote and vacation and garden and hunt and eat and sleep and buy and party and sorrow and do homework like Jesus is coming back? And I'm just putting that out there, that that list of various things from all areas of life to show that the return of Jesus Christ should affect Every single area of our lives. Is it? Is it affecting us in every area of life? The message of 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 1 to 11 is very straightforward and simple. It's this. Jesus is returning on the day of the Lord. We must live and hope accordingly. And Third, we must encourage others to do the same. Jesus is returning on the day of the Lord. Let's live and let's hope accordingly. Let's encourage others to do the same. I think the hope that we we have in the return of Jesus can so easily be overwhelmed by the speculationism of date-setting false prophets. I think that the hope we have in Jesus can be overwhelmed by left behind like sensationalism, where we don't focus on the fact, the simplicity of the truth that Jesus is coming to judge His enemies and deliver His people, but we get caught up in the extravaganza, the spectacle, the things that make for good Hollywood and the things that make for good novels, the sensational things. Anyone who predicts the date of the coming of Jesus, who is not God, is a false prophet. Jesus said very clearly, "It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority." Harold Camping was a recent example. you may remember him from a few years ago. Uh, he had made I think several predictions throughout his life, and the last one I, I believe he's around ninety years old, and so many people were focused on Jesus coming again. And so many people swallowed it up. And many even sold all that they have in preparation for Jesus to return. And did he return at the time that a man had fixed? Of course he didn't. So all of these people who predict a fixed date for Jesus' return are nothing but false prophets. Speculationism. And it overwhelms very easily our hope. And uh, I'm not really planning on seeing the Left Behind movie. It's coming out, uh, this remake of it in October. And what it, I, 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 I haven't even seen a preview for it. But most of what comes out of that whole genre of film and, and novel is just sensationalism that very easily overwhelms the, the hope of the people of God, our true hope. We're not caught up in Jesus coming. We get caught up in peripheral things. Let's read in First Thessalonians 5, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The Thessalonian people had a lot of questions for the Apostle Paul about the coming of Jesus Christ back to the earth. And Paul really doesn't answer all of their questions. In fact, he saves a lot more information for 2 Thessalonians. But here, this is simple, basic stuff. Jesus is coming. When? On the day of the Lord. When is the day of the Lord? I don't know. Paul didn't know. Nobody knows when the day of the Lord is. Now, there, I just want to give you some larger, uh, larger biblical picture of the day of the Lord. The Old Testament prophets would talk about the day of the Lord a lot. And sometimes they were talking about the ultimate day of the Lord that is still in the future. But very often they were predicting, they were prophesying these events that were soon to come, like the invasion of Babylon and the destruction of Jerusalem and the judgment of God's people who were in rebellion and their exile out of the land, and they said, this is the day of the Lord that's coming. Of course, as I've been hinting at, there is an ultimate day of the Lord. The, the ultimate day of the Lord is when Jesus returns. And we have to understand something about it. We're not to have in mind this 24-hour period of time when it says the day of the Lord It's not referring to a 24-hour period of time. Rather, the day of the Lord is the time that God has appointed for the judgment of the wicked and the salvation of His children. And so that can take place over a pretty good length of time. But it's the time when God uniquely comes, uniquely manifests Himself and judges the wicked and saves His people. And of course, that ultimate day of the Lord is what Paul is talking about here. That day that remains future to us. It's the coming of Jesus in which his enemies will be judged and his people will be saved. He writes in verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. He's describing what's going to happen on the day of the Lord for the one who doesn't believe in Jesus. And I think that there are four things that we can take from that verse, four aspects of the day of the Lord that the unbeliever will experience. It will be sudden, it will be unexpected, it will be inescapable, and it will be devastating. At the time, the world is going to be believing two things. They believe that there is peace. They'll be saying everything is okay, all is well and they're going to be talking security, and it's going to stay this way. Everything is well, and it's going to stay that way. And when Paul says that that is going to be the talk of the day, he's not saying the next time the world thinks like that, Jesus is coming. He's not saying, again, the next time the world thinks like that, Jesus is coming. He's saying when Jesus does come, that's going to be the prevailing thought of the day. That's going to be the prevailing talk of the day. But instead of peace, there will be destruction. And instead of dwelling secure, the world is going to perish. So it will be sudden, this day of the Lord. It will be unexpected. It will be inescapable, and it will be devastating. But verse 4, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. I think the only one of those four aspects, sudden, unexpected, inescapable, and devastating, that believers will experience is the suddenness of it. It's going to happen to all people very suddenly. But for us who are trusting in Christ, it's not going to be unexpected because it's going to be the the fulfillment of all of our hope and all of our expectation. It's not going to be inescapable The day of the Lord is our escape. It's our rescue. And it's not going to be devastating. It's going to be all of our blessing. Because Jesus is coming for his people. So it's not surprising to us. Why? Verse 5. For you are all children of light. Children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. The day of the Lord is not going to surprise us. It's not going to take us off guard because of who we are. Because we are children of the day. We are children of the light. Let me use 1 Thessalonians and Paul's descriptions of the Thessalonian Christians to define who the children of light are. Who are the children of the day? All of us who have turned from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. All who have that hope, all who have turned from idols to God, all who are setting their hopes on Jesus and Jesus alone are the children of the light. We are the ones who are the children of the day. So what does it mean to be a child of the light and a child of the day? It means that we belong to the light and we belong to the day already. And the, and the light of that coming day is already shining through our lives. The Bible says we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So we've been saved from the dark. We've been transferred into the kingdom of light. So we are children of the light and children of the day. To be someone's child means basically you belong to them and you follow their lead. That's just a, okay, we'll just sum it up like that. To be someone's child means you belong to them and you follow their lead. The Bible talks about the children of God, but it also talks about the children of the devil. It talks in Ephesians 2 about the sons of disobedience and the children of wrath. So, In the case of the unbeliever, to be a son of disobedience and to be a child of wrath means that disobedience is your life. And as you follow its way, its end, the end of disobedience is your end. So to be a child of the light means that the light characterizes you. It's already, the the light of that future day is already shining through your life. It's who you are. It defines you. And Where it's going is where we are going. So that when the day of the Lord finally does come, we're going to be perfectly at home. Because that's already our life. When that day arrives, we will fully arrive. What I mean is we will fully become all that we already are. That's our hope for the day of the Lord. When it arrives, we will arrive. When it comes, we will become who we already are. Think of, uh, let me just throw out this example real quick. Maybe you've heard the expression that so-and-so is a child of, pick the decade, okay? a child of the the 60s. And, And what they mean is that the ideas and the worldview and the way of life of the 60s is that person's ideas and worldview and way of life. They live according to that, that culture, the culture of the 60s. So that's what we mean when we are the children of light, that we have the same views and loves and desires, and that is our way of life. So this day is not going to catch us off guard because we are children of light and children of the day. It's not going to surprise us like the coming of a thief. So then, Paul says in verses 6 and 7, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. What do people who are of the night do? How do they live? What what they do accords with the night. They do the things that belong to the night. So Paul uses two examples. He talks about, Sleep, and he talks about drunkenness. When we think of the nighttime, we think sleep. When we think of the night life, we think largely of, of drinking, right? What's Paul's point? His point is that we must live according to who we are. We don't belong to the darkness anymore. We don't belong to the light. I mean, to, to the night. We belong to the light. We belong to the kingdom of the day. So we must live according to who we are. We must be morally awake. We must be sober. We must be alert. We must be morally guarded. We must be careful. We must be controlled. Not indifferent or careless. Not unaware of the time. Paul writes in another place, and we're going to talk about this passage in a moment, that the appointed time has grown very short. And he says in another place that the end of the ages has come upon us. Are we aware of that? Are we living like we actually believe that? Are we living according to who we are—that we are the children of light? I, I think that a lot of uh, professing believers are like. Think of someone who's at the beach, um, laid out on their their floating air mattress, and you know it's just slowly rocking them, the sun shining down, and this person falls asleep. They wake up, three hours later, burned to a crisp, and the shoreline far, far away. And a lot of professing believers are like that. Asleep, dead to what reality, and just floating with the current and the tide of the world. That's not who we are. If we are children of the day, we must live like it. And so Paul says in verse 8, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. The day of the Lord should guard our lives from the world and from evil, and it should guide us through life. What controls your life? Do you guard your life and do you guard your heart from the encroachment of the world? Is the reality of Jesus returning to this earth as Savior and King and Judge the hope of your life? Does the return of Jesus control your life? Does the day of the Lord guard your thoughts and your dreams, and your imaginations from evil? And does it guide your desires, your decisions, your goals, and your pursuits? Or is that domain of darkness that you have been saved out of casting shadows over your life? Even more importantly, are you allowing the shadows incursion? Are you protecting the shadows? Are you flirting with evil? Is there any hidden secret sin in your life which end is destruction? Are you indulging in secret sin and brushing off the commandments of God like an unwanted pest? What in your life is out of step with the coming of Jesus? Are we children of the day? let's live accordingly let's live like it and if there is someone here who is hiding sin indulging in secret sin first of all most obviously go to god and repent of that sin but second i would say such is the habitual nature of sin and the power of sin to obsess and to addict that we must confess to someone that we trust, a mature believer who is humble and gentle and wise, who can hold us to account, who won't spread your secret in other places, who won't use it against you, but who will genuinely pour themselves into your life to help you. Because Jesus is coming and we will stand before Him and we will give an account. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7, 29-31. Paul shows us in this passage how pervasive the control of the hope of the day of the Lord must be in our lives. In other words, the coming day of the Lord, that Jesus is coming, must control every aspect of our lives. And the way that Paul puts it in this passage At first glance, it's quite confusing. But it really is astonishing. Even after you get through the explanation. It's astonishing what Paul says here. I'm going to start with the appointed time. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now this is astonishing language, any way you look at it. But what this is, is rhetoric. Which means, and and this does not remove us from obedience, from any responsibility to obey. But rhetoric means that he's not speaking absolutely literally. So, I'm married. Paul is not saying you should live the rest of your life pretending that you don't actually have a wife. Like I would go into the house, see Cherie standing there, and be like, who would you say you are again? And you know, of course, I'd be quite attracted to her. And I'm joking about this, Brianne. But I would see these four kids running around and, you know, I would say, you know, if it wasn't for these four running around, I'd probably ask you out. I'm just kidding. What is Paul saying? Hear the word of the Lord. He says the day of the Lord is coming and the present form of this world is passing away. So everything that is of the present form of this world is temporary. So live accordingly. Your marriage to your spouse is not the be-all and end-all marriage for you. I know that's shocking, but he- hear, hear it out. You rejoice in something, but that's not the be-all and the end-all joy. You are saving up your money for some kind of future purchase, but that acquisition is not the be-all and the end-all acquisition. Why? Because Jesus is coming. And so, bride of Christ, there is a greater marriage still to come. Are you living for it? You have joy, but there is a greater joy that is still to come. You acquire this and that. You make this purchase. But those who are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus, there is a greater acquisition still to come. So everything of this life that we acquire, even every relationship that we have, is not the be-all and the end-all and must not exercise ultimate control of your life. Because it's not your life. Jesus is your life. And our hope in Jesus then must control every aspect. We have to realize that our moments and our motions and our heartbeats and our breaths are all in countdown. You will come to the point that you only have one left and then none left. And when you lose all of that, all of those relationships and acquisitions, when you lose your heartbeat, when you lose your breath, when you lose all of that, will it be lost to you Or, because you now gain Jesus, who is your hope, will it be gain to you? That's why the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1, To me, to live is Christ, and to die, to lose everything, is actually gain. So let those who lose, no matter what you lose, let those who lose live as though they didn't lose. Let those who win live as though they didn't win. Let those who acquire live as though they didn't acquire. Let those who vote live as though they didn't vote. Let those who are Americans live as though they weren't Americans. Let those who are employers live as though they weren't employers. Let those who are employed live as though they weren't employed. Let those who build live as though they weren't building. Live as though you didn't and live as though you weren't. Because compared to the infinite, eternal Jesus, all of those things are nothing. Everything is riding on what? Everything is riding on none of those things. Jesus is our hope. The Apostle Paul says, if you're married, live like you weren't married. But we could ask If we're to live like that, doesn't mean that we will be worse marriage partners, worse spouses. If we who are American live like we weren't American, won't we be worse citizens? No. In all of those things, because the day of the Lord is your hope, you will actually be better. As a child of the day, living with the day of the Lord ever before you, as the hope that guides you and guards you, You will be a better marriage partner. You will be a better citizen. You will be a better employee, employer or employee or retiree. It's not that you'll be worse. We'll be better at working and educating and building and making and delivering and gardening and gathering and eating and befriending and dating and marrying and parenting and nurturing and raising and and disciplining and discipling and learning. We will be better at gaining and better at losing. We will be better at living and we will be better at dying when we live with Jesus as our hope. Because we know that everything is riding on nothing of those things. Jesus is our hope. So what this means practically is that losses and failures don't despair us when Jesus is our hope. And successes and gains don't enthrall us, because Jesus is our hope. We're not going to live and die with whatever happens tomorrow, because whatever happens tomorrow is not our life. Jesus is our life. Jesus is our hope, right? Jesus is it. So Jesus is our hope, but based on what? What is Jesus is our hope, Um, What is the ground for our hope we have in Him? Verses 9 and 10 of 1 Thessalonians 5. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. I can tell you, How strong your hope in Jesus is. Your hope in Jesus is as strong as you've seen and heard and you know Him to be strong. Your hope in Jesus is as strong as you know Him to be strong. Let me give you an example. How strong would your hope be for me to play for you a song on the guitar? Your hope would be as strong as you know me to be on the guitar. Maybe you'd be guessing. You'd probably think, well, I haven't heard anything, so I doubt you're very strong. That would be very, very true. But how how strong would your hope be for Nathan Nelson to play you a song on the guitar? It would be very different, wouldn't it? Because you've seen him. You've heard him. And he has shown you that He is strong on the guitar. So you would have a strong hope that He could play you a song on the guitar. So how strong is your hope in Jesus? It's as strong as you know Him to be strong, as you've seen Him to be strong. How strong is your hope for Jesus to save? Let me put it this way. Jesus has already done the hardest work of salvation. It's already completed. It's already finished. He already came and died the death that we had earned. He He lived the life that God's holiness commanded, and He died the death that we couldn't. We couldn't live as God commanded. And we couldn't die as God demanded. Jesus did that. He lived for us. He died for us. Right? And He defeated our enemies and His sin, death, hell, the devil, are all defeated. So what is left for Jesus to accomplish? We've already been saved from the penalty of our sin. We're not completely saved yet. We're not yet in His presence glorified, our bodies and souls made like Him. But what is left for Him to do? How strong is your hope that Jesus can save? Let me put it this way. I'm going to pick on somebody else. Let's say that uh, James Futch and I are, are at, uh, one of Lacey's track meets. Okay, so Lacey is a pretty good runner. I haven't seen it, but I've, I've heard quite a bit about it. She's a good runner. Long distance runner. So let's say that we're at this, uh, this event that she's running, she's running a, a 5K, uh, cross country race. I don't know if she runs this kind of thing, but it's, it goes through the woods, it goes up and down hills, dips and turns and all of that. Okay, so James and I are watching this race. We're we're in a place where we can see the last half kilometer of the race. So the race starts. Lacey and all of these other runners take off, and pretty soon she loses everybody. Okay? She's running one of her best races. So so much time goes by, about 30 seconds for the 5K. And and here comes Lacey out of the woods again into view for her last half kilometer. And it's a all the competition, we don't. there's no sight of them whatsoever. Lacey's all alone, has to finish this last little leg of the race, and it's just a, we'll say it's a nice, smooth, downgrade uh, for the last half kilometer to the finish line. And I say to James, how confident are you that Lacey can finish off this race and beat the competition? And he says, this is going to be as easy for her as it is for me to take my next breath. Why? Because she's already done the hard work. She has already beaten the competition because she has the skill to do it. She's going to win this race as easy as it is for James to take his next breath. Jesus is coming. And Jesus is going to save us. And it's not going to be as easy as your next breath it's going to be as easy for him to save you as his next breath. Because that's exactly what is promised for the people of God. In 2 Thessalonians, the Bible says that there will be this ultimate figure of evil coming. He's called the lawless one. He is called the Antichrist. And for those believers who are alive and remain at that time, He is going to do some devastating things. There will be some horrible persecution in that day. But listen to the power of this one. The Bible says the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception. What an incredible, formidable foe. Not one of us could withstand such a person. But when Jesus comes, he will kill him with the breath of his mouth and by the appearing of his coming. He will show up and breathe, and the enemy will be conquered. Salvation. The last part, the last leg is as good as done because he has already done the hard work. The course of our salvation is so much already complete so that the rest of it is not as easy as your next breath. The rest of it is as easy as his next breath. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Whether we are awake at that time, alive on the earth when He comes, or whether we die before asleep, either way, because Jesus died for us, we will not die the second death, because Christ has already borne our judgment. Because He lives now, we who believe in Him We'll live with Him. So Paul concludes this word. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Encourage one another with these truths. Have you reminded any of your brothers and sisters lately where their true hope lies? Have you encouraged someone with the truth of the coming salvation on the day of the Lord. Whether we live or die, one way or the other, we're going home. We'll be with Jesus because Jesus is going to see to it. Let's encourage one another and build one another up with those words. Father, we thank You for the promise of our coming conqueror and King who is coming to save us and to defeat all his foes. There's a lot of particular detail about the day of the Lord that we don't know. There's a lot of sensationalism out there that can distract us. I pray, Father, that everyone who is in this room would keep their eyes fixed on Jesus their hopes fixed on Jesus so that nothing else controls our life. Um, we don't live, we don't die with anything else because Jesus is our life. Jesus is our hope. So we thank you for this promise and we pray that we would live accordingly. We would live as children of the day, children of the light. And I pray, Father, that we would do a good job and a better job at encouraging one another with these promises. Help us to keep on going, faithful to the end. In Jesus' name, and for His sake I pray. Amen.